to Fantastic History. I'm Sarah. And I'm Clay. We're a husband and wife duo who enjoy telling each other about amazing events, people, and mysteries throughout history. So when this episode comes out, there will only be two days left until my birthday, which is basically a national holiday. My dad calls it International Pumpkin Day. No big deal. (laughs) Um, So of course, I want to celebrate by doing a real banger of an episode. All right. Let me ask you, Clay, what can you tell me? About Sarah Chapman. Um, I don't really know her all that well. <laughs> uh, I think she lives in the southeast. Okay. And she likes um, she likes Marilyn Monroe. Mm-hmm. And and um, and to dance. Okay. And puppies. Yeah. Sure. Pandas. Sure. Yeah pandas there's probably a couple other things that i'm not thinking about okay gotcha so you think i meant me yeah okay fair enough um i'm actually not the sarah chapman in question though oh really yeah believe it or not i'm not gonna do an episode about myself well i thought was i was (laughs) i close with (laughs) you know probably not okay honestly um, so for this Sarah Chapman, we're going to hop in the Wayback Machine and travel to London's East End in the year 1862. Halloween of 1862, to be more exact. Very jealous to report that this other Sarah Chapman is a Halloween baby. Wow. I know. I'm very bitter about that. When I saw that, I was like, Are you, do you have to take everything from me? Really? <laughs> Sarah was the fifth of seven children, and her parents weren't exactly making tons of money. Her father was a brewer's servant who also sometimes worked on the docks, and her mother worked in a matchstick factory. So this is like peak Victorian era poverty situation, where as soon as the kids are old enough, they were expected to go out and get jobs too. A couple of the Chapman daughters joined their mother at the Bryant and May matchmaking factory. And this includes Sarah, who took a position there when she was 19 years old. So let's talk a little bit about matchmaking, because this is not, it's not a job you'd ever want for yourself or for anyone you remotely cared about. Employees like Sarah were referred to as machinists. They worked about 14 hours a day, six days a week, and they were paid less than five shillings per week. Now, for me, saying five shillings doesn't really give you any idea of how much money that actually is. So I looked it up and it would take about 1,855 shillings to equal one American dollar. Ooh. Yeah. So they're being paid less than five shillings every week. And keep that in mind, like, That's not even a penny in today's money. To make matters somehow even worse, Bryant and May put a series of strict rules in place for which the punishment was reduced wages. So if you were caught talking to your coworkers during your shift, or you dropped a match, or you went to the bathroom without asking, they would dock your pay. If you showed up even a couple of minutes late to your shift, they only paid you half of that day's wages. Mm. Because their wages were so low, many of the women couldn't afford a pair of shoes. But you'd be fined yet again if you came into work with dirty feet. So there was no winning with that one. Like, there's no way out of it because the more you're hit with this fine, the less likely it is that you'll be able to afford shoes, which means your feet will keep being dirty because you're walking to work barefoot. Right. 
Now, if you think that's bad, though, strap in, because these women developed some truly heinous health issues from handling the phosphorus used to make the match heads and from breathing in the fumes that it caused. Employees also had to eat their lunch in the building, which led to their food being contaminated by the phosphorus as well. Oh, no. Yeah. So because of this, they would develop stuff like jaundice, hair loss, and a very specific type of bone cancer that at the time was referred to as fossy jaw because it was caused by phosphorus. Mm -hmm. If you developed fossy jaw, the affected side of your face would turn green at first and then black, all the while leaking a foul smelling pus. Fossy jaw often caused brain damage and it was always fatal. Miserable. Yeah. And for this, you're making five shillings a week at most. So it was for this reason that the use of phosphorus had been banned in countries like the U.S. and Sweden at this point. But despite all the evidence of how dangerous it was, the British government pretty much just shrugged and said they didn't want to interfere with free trade. Sorry. Like that's kidding me yeah that's pretty shitty but not entirely surprising unfortunately no it is not so enter the fabian society founded in 1884 the fabian society is a democratic socialist group they're still around today um who believes in gradual reformation rather than trying to overthrow the government a lot of their ideology is rooted in humanism which was thomas more's whole thing back in the tudor era I know we've mentioned Thomas More a couple of times in the past, so that's a little fun tie-in for you. Got some humanists uh, in the 1880s here. Now, as a socialist organization, of course, the Fabian Society is very invested in workers' rights. And during their meeting in June of 1888, they decided to boycott Bryant and May matches until they agreed to pay their employees a fair wage and got rid of all the ridiculous penalties. A journalist named Annie Besant was in attendance that day, and she was horrified by what she was hearing. She decided to write an expose for her paper, The Link, which was known for exposing this type of bullshit specifically. Like, there's a lot of stuff like this that they would focus on. So The Link was famous for campaigning against, quote, sweated labor, extortionate landlords, unhealthy workshops, child labor, and prostitution. So following this meeting of the Fabian Society, she went down to the Bryan and May factory and waited outside the gates to interview some of the workers firsthand about their experiences. Sarah Chapman was 25 years old at this time. So can you imagine as a 25 year old having to ask permission every single time you needed to use the bathroom at work? It's pretty humiliating, although I'm sure, I mean, a lot of those rules are very ridiculous, but... Like yeah. the bathroom rule, I know, is still in effect in places here in the United States. That is disgusting. Yeah. Like, that's horrible. I'm an adult and I have to, like, raise my hand and wait for the teacher to give me a, like, hall pass. Are you serious? Yeah, but usually it doesn't result in garnished wages on the first offense. <laughs> right. Can you imagine, like, too, like, being financially penalized for going to the bathroom without permission? Like, that's the thing. If you're not chained at the chair that I have to come and unlock you. But if you go anyway, like, yeah, like you were saying, they immediately like are docking your wages and going even broader than that. Can you imagine working 14 hours a day, six days a week and having less than a penny to show for it or having even that cut in half because you were late one day. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, constantly having to worry about getting bone cancer in your jaw that turned your skin green and full of pus before it inevitably kills you. 
So yeah, Sarah was definitely on board for anything that would teach her employers a lesson. Annie Besant's article was published on June 23rd with the highly inflammatory headline, White Slavery in London. The bigwigs at Bryant and May responded by passing out statements for all their employees to sign saying that none of Annie's claims were true and that their lives were healthy and awesome and don't even worry about it. The workers discussed it amongst themselves, even though that was one of the things that got their wages garnished was talking to each other. And they decided as a group that they were not going to sign these statements like that is not happening. The small group of women who convinced the others not to sign were immediately fired. And so on July 5th, 1400 match girls went on strike. When all of this went down, Sarah had been with Brian and May for about six years and had been promoted to the patent department where she worked as a booker. So that gave her a little bit more authority and esteem in the eyes of her coworkers. She was also one of the few women in the factory who had received a decent education. So she was nominated to write a letter to Annie Besant praising her expose piece and telling her like, don't worry about Brian and May's threats of a libel lawsuit. Like we got you girl. It's fine. So the letter was actually preserved. So I'm going to read it to you now. Okay. My dear lady, we thank you very much for the kind interest you have taken in us poor girls and hope that you will succeed in your undertakings. You need not trouble yourself about the letter I read in the link that Mr. Bryant sent you because you have spoken the truth and we are very pleased to read it. They are trying to get the poor girls to say that it is all lies that has been printed and trying to make them sign papers to say it is lies. Dear lady, no one knows what we have to put up with and we will not sign them. We all thank you very much for the kindness you have shown to us. We hope you will not get into any trouble on our behalf as what you have spoken is quite true. We hope that if there will be any meeting, we hope you will let us know it in the book. I have no more to say at present from yours truly with kind friends wishes for you, dear lady, for the kind love you have shown us poor girls. Do not mention the date this letter was written, or I might have put my or our names, but we are frightened. Do keep that as a secret. We know that you will do that. Wow. So they knew that, like, if it got back to Bryant and May, I mean, probably if it got back to Bryant and May that this letter was written at all, they would probably know that it was Sarah or somebody else in a similar position just because so few of their employees could read and write. I see. Yeah. Sarah was sent as a delegate the following day, along with her co-workers, Mary Knollis and Mary Cummings, to hand deliver this letter to Annie Besant and get some advice and support on how to best fight for their rights. 200 other girls and women marched behind them in a show of solidarity, which must have been like such an incredible sight because this was the first time, the very first time women had ever gone on strike in England. Wow. Yeah. Led by... Sarah Chapman, no big deal. (laughs) So Sarah and the two Marys were invited into Annie's office to talk about Brian and May's response to the link article and the best way to move forward. Annie didn't agree with striking just on general principle, but she agreed to help the match girls through her journalistic and political connections. So this included the editors of the Pall Mall Gazette, the star and the labor elector, a political lecturer from Oxford several prominent socialists of the time and even famed playwright George Bernard Shaw, who was best known for Pygmalion, which later became the Audrey Hepburn vehicle, My Fair Lady. So, you know, 
No big deal. It's only Audrey Hepburn. It's fine. (laughs) From that initial meeting with Annie, an official strike committee was formed with Sarah at the head. They held their first meeting on July 8th, where one of the attendants suggested they start a strike register, which was basically like a petition with all the names of folks who were planning to strike. Like you, if you were going to sit out of work, you'd come and sign the register. On the day the register first was made public, it garnered over 700 signatures. Nice. Yeah. So a lot of folks got involved at this point, but not everybody was on board. Some chuckle fuck at the London Times had the audacity to write, The pity is that the match girls have not been suffered to take their own course, but have been egged on to strike by irresponsible advisors. No effort has been spared by those pests of the modern industrialized world to bring this quarrel to a head. Yeah. Gross, dude. Yeah. That sentiment has been around, Mm. you know, for a very long time. Tale as old as time. Yeah. In the meantime... Annie took a group of the match girls to the House of Commons to meet with members of Parliament, Robert Cunningham Graham and Charles Coneybear, which I apologize if I'm pronouncing his name wrong. It is spelled in a crazy freaky way. Um, So we're just going (laughs) to call him old Charlie C. Okay. Um, I don't think I'll ever mention his name again, but that's fine. Things really took off at the next session of Parliament when those two MPs brought the matter to the floor. At this point, even the rude-ass London Times changed their tune and became very pro-match girl strike. So even though they just made those sassy comments like a week before, they're like, I am just kidding. I'm really sorry. Okay. So there's that. So now that they have all these public figures on their side, it's time to start making some demands. They began by forming a union and meeting with representatives from the charitable institution Toynbee Hall, as well as the London Trades Council. They held public meetings and garnered tons of media attention, and Sarah was basically holding all the cards when only 12 days after the strike began, she and the other members of the strike committee were called into a meeting with the board of Bryant and May. Oh, boy. Yeah, so their demands were as follows. No more fines for any reason whatsoever. I can be 87 hours late to work. You're just going to have to deal with it. They were not going to have the cost of supplies like paint, brushes, and stamps docked from their pay. Everybody on both sides of the table has to sit down and hash out any problems they're having with each other before any harsh action is taken. Everyone who was fired at the start of all this has to be reinstated. Bryant and May have to allow their employees to form a union. And Bryant and May have to provide an actual break room for people to eat their meals without their food getting contaminated. There were also a couple of like other things on the list related to pay that I don't have any context for because like the units of money just like are not modern and make no sense to me. Like a half penny and like all, all this like, sorry to like old timey British people. I don't understand your money. So that's okay. Just understand that th- that was part of the negotiations. Right. Brian and May caved immediately. They didn't have to do like a second round of negotiations or anything. They agreed to all of the union's demands. Hey. 12 days the strike lasted and they were like, okay, sorry, fine. Have okay. it your way. Like amazing, amazing yeah. result. So the Union of Women Matchmakers was the largest women's union in England from the time of its first enrollment on August 4th, 1888, when a whopping 468 women and girls signed up. 
Sarah was elected president and became their official representative in the International Trades Union Congress. Not long after, they decided to be inclusive of all genders and change their name to the Matchmakers Union. About a year or so later, there was another massive strike amongst dock workers, the aptly named Great Dock Strike. (laughs) A lot of the husbands, fathers, and brothers of the Match Girls just so happened to be dock workers. And you may remember me mentioning that Sarah's father um, was a part-time dock worker. So, I mean, even within her household, you know, they have relatives who are dock workers. So it's kind of easy to see where the dock workers got this idea that going on strike would solve their problems. These two strikes are credited with the formation and growth of the labor movement in the UK, ultimately leading to the establishment of the Labour Party, which is still a major political party in England to this day. It sure is. As for Sarah, she continued to work at Bryant in May as a booker until her marriage in December of 1891 to a cabinet maker named Charles Dearman. Sarah and Charles had six children and lived the rest of their lives in London's East End. Though Charles died a little on the young side, Sarah lived to be 83 years old before dying of lung cancer in 1945. Wow. Yeah. Well, so she avoided the, uh, that horrible, um, Fossy jaw. Fossy jaw. Fossy jaw, yeah. I mean, she she did still end up with cancer. So, I mean, there's honestly, there could have been a connection there because she was breathing in those fumes and she was working with the phosphorus for several years. So, I mean, you can't say that there's no chance that it had an impact, but to have lived for another, you know, 60 plus years, you know, who's to say? Yeah. Yeah. It, It certainly could have been, but 83 is uh is not too bad no and, I mean, and, and especially she clearly for the time. lived a very very full life oh yeah a lot of accomplishments yep so one thing i will say before we close um most of this information i got from a website called matchgirls1888.org and it's run by one of sarah's direct descendants Oh. Um, she has been on like a big campaign. You can go on their website right now. And of course we'll have the link in our show notes, but right now Sarah's grave is like under threat of being mounded, which is something you got to think about how long have they been burying people in England? Like thousands of years. Yeah. So mounding is the thing they do where they'll go into old graves and just kind of put new dirt over them and start burying people on top of them. So that's kind of Sarah's Sarah was buried in a pauper's grave with, I think three other people. So there's not a marker like people have been able to figure out where exactly it is, like the exact burial spot. They know where she is now, but it's being threatened with mounding. There's still not a headstone, I believe. Um, So that's something that on this website that her um, great, great granddaughter is raising money for to just get like to save the burial site first of all yeah. from being destroyed and lost forever but also wanting to put up a monument and possibly even like a statue to memorialize this massive event that i mean you can't really deny that it changed the history of England forever because now we have the labor party like i was saying yeah. like it's affecting politics to this day and this is over 100 years ago i mean this is almost like 140 years ago um, so definitely something worth remembering. So if you are able to, you know, go check out the site, you know, throw a little bit of money her way. Um, 
to kind of get those taken care of. Also on the site, she has, you know, petitions that you can sign for free just, you know, to save Sarah's grave to, you know, lobby for getting statues, some kind of marker put up to honor these women that, you know, changed the the whole entire history of England. So, you know, just a little something you can do if you enjoyed that story. Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah, it is. And you know what else, honey? What? Another thing you can do if you enjoyed this story. Yeah. You can like and subscribe to oh. us on whatever podcast platform you use. Good idea. Yeah. You can also check us out on Instagram and Twitter. We're at Fantastic H Pod on both. You can also shoot us a message at fantastichistorypod at gmail.com if you know of any amazing events, people, and mysteries throughout history that you'd like us to cover on the show. Or if you just want to say hi. Until next time. Bye.